Welcome to Kindred, hosted by me, Kate, and my sister, Jen. In this podcast, we explore our human relationship to the natural world. In connecting to this planet, we also connect to understanding, compassion, and empathy. How can we see ourselves not as separate or above animals in nature, but a critical and integrated part of an active ecosystem? Through conversations with animal advocates, scientists, conservationists, and many others, we look to inspire a new awareness of how and why we connect to animals and nature in order to repair and restore our relationship to the natural world. Hello and welcome back to Kindred, everyone. Um, how's it going, Jennifer? It's going. It's going. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a little gray and a little... You a know, lot really- gray. And a lot, eh. Yes, yeah, this winter, yeah, but it's all right. Um, so I've got some uh, animal companions here today, so if we hear any extracurricular noises, that's just one of my new kitties, Izzy, and my dog, Blue, as usual, is here. You are uh, in your recording studio, I see. So yeah, exactly, very almost. quiet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quiet out here, so that's very the good. point, yeah. <laughs> So, Jennifer, are you ready to talk about ants today? I sure am. I sure am, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so excited. And I'm not being condescending to myself. I actually really mean that. Um, Did I ever tell you the story of years ago when Dave, my husband, and I were driving somewhere and I was in one of my thought processes, and um, which you've experienced, lucky enough. And out of the blue, I asked him if he ever wonders what the language, I was like, do you ever wonder what the language of ants is? <laughs> yep. And there was this long pause. Uh, and he was like, um, nope. I never wondered that. Nope. <laughs> no. I think most people would answer that same mm-hmm. way. And yeah. then I, I literally looked at him like, oh, do, do people like not think about that? So, oh boy, that's, that's me anyway. So yeah, you got to talk <laughs> to an expert. So finally, after years yeah. of deep thoughts about ants and their 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 language, we are that's getting answered today. So I'm pretty pumped. Yeah, um, that is pretty cool. So let me introduce you to our guest today, Dr. Andy Suarez. Andy is a professor at the University of Illinois with the Department of Entomology, and he studies the ecology, evolution, and behavior of ants. And when we started researching this episode, um, I actually reached out to Dr. May Berenbaum, the entomologist we spoke with in the episode, Bugs, the Unsung Heroes. Do we all remember that? Yep. Um, And she recommended that we speak with Andy. So thanks so much, May, for that uh, introduction. We really appreciate it. Um, And why did we want to talk about ants today, you asked, Jennifer? Well, The answer would be, um, I mean, honestly, seriously, I think that, you know, ants are one of those species that are everywhere, literally, right? And we see them every day and we don't know anything about them and what Mm -hmm. they are actually doing in our world. And, you know, how are they, we don't know that they're keeping our world clean and healthy what they're actually doing. And they're off, they're, they're just so small and we see them as inconsequential which today we learned they are not. So, right. you know, right. It's just like, it's important to know who and what is around us, I think. And 
just because we may not acknowledge them doesn't mean that they aren't critical to our well-being and the health of this planet. And, mm-hmm. you know, so maybe we can cut them a break, be grateful for them even, you know, there's there's all of that. Yeah. Uh, so I just think they're, again, a great example of of knowing the world around us and the ecosystems that we are literally integrated in. And um, and thanks so much in advance for Andy. Great conversation. So yeah, he was great. Yeah, he was great. So um, yeah, let's head over to our ant expert, Andy Suarez, and we will see you at the takeaway. Andy, thank you so much for joining us at Kindred today. If you could introduce yourself and tell us what you do. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. My name is Andy Suarez, and I'm a professor at the University of Illinois. Um, I study the ecology, evolution, and behavior of ants. And so I'm excited to ask answer any questions you might have about uh, ants today. Yeah, no, I mean, and I have to say, um, I've been interested in ants for a really long time maybe awkwardly i don't know i just think they're amazing little creatures so we are very excited for you to to join us today all the way from australia so thank you for that with this epic time change um so i once saw what i would call i guess a sculpture of what an ant colony looks like underground and i guess someone had poured some kind of material down into the earth and into an ant colony really hoping there were no ants still left in there but after the material had hardened, they excavated the site. And the extent and complexity of the tunnels was astounding. And it just covered this large area of ground. Um, so could you tell us about ant colonies and the structure and I guess the inner workings of their their underground world? Sure, yeah. The, yeah, so ants are, are fascinating. They're, they're incredibly diverse you know, over 15,000 different species, and they nest kind of almost anywhere you can imagine. Many uh, nest underground, like you've described. Others nest up in trees and twigs or branches. Um, others make their own nests out of carton uh, or fungus. So they're they're incredibly uh, diverse. They kind of occupy every niche uh, on Earth. The subterranean nests are really common. The, the casts that you saw were likely made by someone named Walter Chinkle, who's become oh. somewhat famous for making these nest casts. And he melts uh, either aluminum or, or zinc in a large kiln, and he'll pour it under, under underground, usually in sandy soils that the, the metal will penetrate pretty well, and it's then easier to dig up. And then it provides this fascinating insight into what the structure of a colony looks like underground, which, of course, we can never see, right, because of right. the nature under the soil. And you get incredible insight when you do that. Not only is it kind of beautiful, like a piece of art when it's removed from the ground and cleaned up, but the the nature of the nest, the components that make up the, the nest, like each chamber, the space between chambers, how uh, the tunnels go from chamber to chamber, often helically, um, how deep they penetrate underground, which might depend on the depth of the water table or how warm or cold you know the colony needs to keep. All of this tells you something about the behavior of the ants that made that and their needs in terms of where they store eggs and where the queen lives, what temperature or humidity they need. And so you get amazing, not only biological insight, but really interesting insight into the behavior of ants by studying those nest casts. Um, because, you know, an individual ant isn't that smart. They don't have a large brain, just a small 
mushroom body, but collectively, right, by following very simple decision rules, they create these really complex and beautiful structures that are necessary for their survival. So when you say, did you just say mushroom body? Yeah, so we, we call the aggregation of kind of nerves and neurons uh, in the in uh, that make up the brain of an insect like an ant. It's often referred to a mushroom body because of the shape of it. It looks kind of like a mushroom. Okay, interesting. So I guess in, in general, like how many ants are in a colony underground then? Yeah, again, it depends on the species. Some ants have very small colonies, uh, maybe a dozen uh, workers. Okay. Um, these are often kind of like these really rare, highly specialized ants. While other ants like army ants or leafcutter ants can have millions of workers in their colony at any wow. one time. Wow. So I guess this artist that I now know as Walter Chinkle, he was probably, he that was a large, large nest. And that was somewhere, you know, you know, uh, where was that, that he was doing these? Yeah. So he works primarily in Florida, and okay. some of his most kind of famous elaborate nests are from uh, seed harvesting ants. Uh, it's a uh, genus called Poganomyrmix, and they have really deep uh, nests, often not only for them to live, but to store seeds underground. So if we are just walking in our backyard and you see, you know, the anthill on the outside that we see, the that typical ant in the you know northern hemisphere what how deep would their nest go underground yeah that uh, the great question it depends on the ant some ants okay. again live really shallowly um often with most of the nest underneath a stone or log and then extending into the soil maybe a foot or two feet while other nests uh, uh, of ants for example an ant called the winter ant which uh, tends to come out only when it's cold outside its nest can be three meters deep um, and it uses that again to buffer itself from the temperatures. Okay. So they really vary. Interesting. Wow. So then do ant colonies have, because I'm thinking about a lot about bees, right? So I'm kind of comparing them often to bees in my brain. Do they, do they have a queen and does she have her own little queen quarters? Yeah. So uh, like bees, uh, ants are called eusocial. Uh, that is they're obligately social. Uh, ants, bees, wasps, termites, and they uh, have a queen um, or sometimes many queens uh, and, and ants that we call polygynous because they have more than one queen. And then they uh, have an area that they tend to, to stay um, largely because the temperature and humidity is great for the eggs and larva, which she's you know, laying almost constantly. And she'll have a retinue of workers that'll help take care of those uh, uh, eggs and larva, like nurses, similar to how bees work. But they can have multiple queens in one colony and they don't fight with each other. That's interesting. That's different than bees. I used to keep bees um, and just that whole thing about you have to go in and make sure there's no more queen cells or else you're going to lose half your bees. They'll leave. So that's interesting right. that ants are more collaborative than that. That's interesting. Yeah, it, it depends on the ant. Some ants okay. do have a single queen. That's very typical um, okay. for most ants. But then there are some ants that, that take it to the extreme. And this is particularly true for um, some what we call pest or tramp ants, that ants that have been introduced by humans throughout the world, where they become really ecologically and economically disruptive, you know, household pests, agricultural pests. And a, a characteristic of many of these pest ants uh, is that they'll have huge numbers of queens, thousands of queens. Wow. And, and the consequence of this is not only do they have a huge capability for growth, right? Thousands of queens, each one producing thousands of eggs a day. Right. But it means that if you have a potted plant or a, a, 
a crate or something and a few ants get in it, it's likely that those ants will include queens. And so if you're moving these plants around for the horticultural trade or you're moving boxes around internationally, like, you know, for a company, um, you will not only just occasionally bring workers with you, you will bring entire colonies with you wow. with new queens. And when they get to a new area, they'll become established with the potential to spread and cause damage. Wow, interesting. So within the so so how do like so we're on the East Coast, we're just outside of Philadelphia. So if we're thinking in the context of our ants here, how many how much in general, how many species of ants or types of ants do we have here? on average i mean do you know yeah so in a state like philadelphia you might have i mean locally like in your yard you might have five or ten species of ant uh, particularly if you live in a wooded area um across the state you might get closer to 80 species of ant or so um and then you know if we spread out to the united states i can't remember the exact number but i think it's now over 600 species of described ants that are in the united states and then as you get into you know more tropical areas you, you can find, you know, thousands of species uh, in, in like a rainforest in Brazil. So, and, and often, like Jen was saying, we've got those little ant mounds. And if like I'm, let's say, having tea or lunch or something on the on the patio and crumbs fall, those guys, they come out and they take those little crumbs down into that little pyramid hole. But how, what generally are ants feeding on and then how do they feed their ant babies? <laughs> Yeah. So uh, ants, uh, typically, like your average ant is uh, a scavenger, right? It's really feeding on anything it can find opportunistically, whether it's crumbs, um, dead insects, even live insects that it might collect, um, but also foraging for things like nectar from flowers or honeydew that's produced from insects like aphids that excrete honeydew right. as they feed on plants. And that's a really important carbohydrate source for many ants. And then at the other extreme, you have very highly specialized ants, you know, the uh, obligate hunting ants that really specialize on certain types of prey, like only feeding on millipedes um, uh, or columbula, which are springtails that are really common in the soil. And, and then there are ants that are um, uh, what we call uh, fungus growing ants. That is, they, they usually bring in leaf material or other detritus and they grow a fungus on that, and then they they live off of the, the fruiting body of the fungus. And uh, it's a really highly specialized relationship. In fact, it's thought of as the oldest known form of agriculture in which these ants have to cultivate their fungus, much like we cultivate our gardens, to keep them clean, free of parasites and other fungus in order to, to have this food source that they maintain. That's crazy. Wow. I never knew that. And then why would an ant or a bunch of ants, why would they rather come into your house, let's say, when they find your honey, I have some that sure. come in and get into my honey, then just stay outside and find stuff out there just because that's an easier an easier thing for them to get? Why would that, it seems like that would be much more work for them, but. Yeah, and again, it depends on the ant. Some ants are pretty well adapted to um, the way humans have modified the world, right? And so if you think about an urban environment, it has characteristics that are quite different than a natural environment. And some of that is this kind of shelters that we create for ourselves, but also, also buffer the environment from too much heat or too much cold, too much rain. That right. would be very attractive to a wide variety of organisms that might move their nests right into your house. Right. And so there are some ants like the odorous house ant. That's a really small ant that's attracted to sugar. 
You can yeah. recognize it uh, in, in Pennsylvania, for example, if you smush one with your finger and smell it, it has a very strong odor, uh, thus its name, of uh, either coconut uh, or blue cheese. Different people think <laughs> they different things. And that's based on this chemical that they have in them. But it's an easy way to identify it. And th their, their colonies are incredibly mobile. So they might start outside. And then if it's a little too hot or rainy, they'll find the walls of your house as a very suitable nesting place. So they could um, be living in the house already and just be like, wait, we know what, there's sugar in here. We're going to go find it. Okay. That's right. They could be living in the soil just outside your house or inside your right. house. And then another really interesting thing about ants is that, again, you know, individuals aren't all that smart, but collectively they'll have a memory, right? They will remember where resources are in part because when they go to a resource and it's something that is, is valuable, um, uh, like a crumb or or honey, um, they might leave a foraging trail back to their colony. And that chemical scent that they leave back to the colony lets other ants know where that resource is. And through time, right, those trails will build up. And even if workers die or disappear, the colony moves, there's this memory of where food was. And if it's a really good food resource or a location where food is typically found, that that trail or memory will get reinforced. And that's why they keep coming back. You know? okay. Oh, um, yeah. So, not, this other ants actually smell the trail. That's what you're that's saying. That's right. Yeah. Okay. They, they will recruit other individuals to where they found a food source. And that's my next question, too, is that um, so that that's leads me to think of these chemical trails because i was thinking if like as i have a very strict catch and release in my house so i sweep up the ants and then i put them outside and i'm always like i'm so sorry i don't know where your colony is you're gonna have to get back but you just can't live in my honey so i'm gonna sweep you out but i mean ants seem to have like a highly complicated and advanced system of com communication so talk to us about ant behavior in context to how they communicate and run such an intricate so social system and how do they keep such a massive community in sync and running smoothly and like how do they find their way around they're so i mean often so tiny yeah that it's i think that's such a fascinating topic and ants are remarkable in their ability to communicate and while ants um, often have eyes that are you know for insects relatively well developed they're not great at seeing things uh, instead, they communicate uh, by touch with their antenna or other sensory organs, and they pick up chemical signatures from their environment. Um, a key to the success of ants, in part, is that um, by having a large colony, they um, exhibit division of labor, right? So they have individuals who can do things in parallel rather than in sequence, uh, and many individuals who can do things. And often there's specialization among individuals. For example, like honeybees, young ants tend to be nurses and they hang out in the colony where it's safe. Um, and then as they get older, they'll do things like undertaking to remove dead ants. And then they, um, as they get even older, they'll switch to foraging and then leave the nest to look for food, which is often considered the most dangerous thing you can do as an ant because you're now outside of the protected environment of the colony. Right. So simply by looking at the age of an ant, you'll get different behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because they're more prone to do different things uh, as they age. And that starts allowing that colony to, to function collectively, make sure all things are being done simply by having workers uh, of different ages. In addition, um, anytime an ant bumps into something like another ant, it's getting information chemically from that ant. Was that ant inside the colony? Was it outside? Does it have food or did it recently experience food? Is it um, an alarm pheromone that's in the air suggesting there's a threat nearby? Or is it a trail pheromone suggesting there's food nearby? And so simply by interacting with 
objects in the environment or other ants, um, it's getting information that might change the decision rules it's using to decide what to do at the moment. Mm. And so the simple, you know, if you touch something, um, either continue doing what you're doing or change what you're doing to something else based at the frequency you encounter something, right? These really simple decision rule trees, once you add them up among many different individuals, each one that might have a different predisposition for one behavior or another based on age or experience, now you get this incredibly complex social environment, this colony level you know, distribution of behaviors that allow a colony to function incredibly efficiently. But again, you might not have ever predicted that just by watching the behavior of a single individual, because it's the context, the social context that allows the colony um, to, to function the way it does. But that makes sense that you're saying like bumping, like the, the antenna and the chemical sort of transaction that happens, because I, I have watched ants a lot and they do, they do this. And I'm always wondering, like they bump into each other and they kind of meet head on and they do this sort of bumping thing and then they carry on their way. And I guess that's the transfer of information that they're doing at that moment. That's incredible. Yeah, it's it's and they do that with other insects too. So, you know, if an ant bumps into another ant outside of the colony, the first thing it might assess based on its chemical signature, like if your chemicals are very similar to mine, we're likely from the same colony, let's cooperate. Um, if your chemicals are really different, you're likely from a different colony and we should compete or you're a different species and you might be a food item, right? So right. The, the, all those chemical signatures, signatures out there in nature are relaying an incredible amount of important information. Wow, that's very interesting. Um, now, also, how long do, does an ant, and it might vary species to species, but how long do they live? Like, I, I'm thinking again of honeybees that in the summer, they don't live very long at all because they're working very, very hard. So yeah. I'm curious if that's true for ants too or not. Yeah, so ants will, a, a typical worker ant might only live a few months. Um, some of the larger species of ants have workers that might live more than a year. Uh, okay. There's an ant that I've seen in Argentina called Dinoponera australis, the tropical hunting ant. You know, their workers are over an inch uh, long. I mean, they're just huge. And uh, there we've seen them uh, in captivity live, you know, almost two years, which is kind of ridiculous for an ant worker. Yeah. In contrast, like honeybees, you know, queens can live many years. There are um, leaf cutting ants, as I mentioned before, or army ants have these, you know, incredibly large queens that might live 30 or more years. And that's a fascinating question. You know, you have two individuals, the same DNA, right? They're yes. sisters, a queen and a worker. Um, yet the worker will only live a few months, the queen will live 20 or 30 years. And um, it's become a fascinating question for people who study kind of kind of the genetics of uh, aging and what is it that our body is doing in terms of the proteins it makes and all the changes that happen as we age. And you would think that, you know, well, workers are not reproductive, right? They're not expending all this energy into ovary development, into wing muscles. Um, and the queen, in contrast, might be laying a thousand eggs a day, incredible energy expenditure, yet it's the queen that's living, outliving the workers by, you know, 10 times. And um, a number of labs throughout the world have been trying to understand that. What is it about right. queens that allow them to live so much longer than workers? Yeah, I bet. That's astounding. I, I never, ever would have ever guessed that. That's crazy. Except for the fact that the whole colony is at her beck and call, sort of, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, the, the workers are, you know, they've through developmental changes, right? Uh, you know, at, at a critical time 
uh, during development, as a larva is developing in the colony, it, it'll get fed differently. And right. if it gets fed certain types of food or amounts of food, it undergoes like all these you know, changes in the genes that are expressed, development it becomes a queen, others are somewhat suppressed and they become workers. And again, workers are often sterile, they don't have wings. And so you, you have the, you know, the queen or other workers in the colony by controlling the way larvae are fed or causing this cascade in terms of what a larva becomes, a queen versus a worker. And then you have um, this environment in which now workers are really ephemeral, right? Because they're not reproducing, they can do all of these high risk tasks, leave the colony forage, and um, you know, it doesn't matter if they die because right. it's like, you know, in our case, just cells right. as part of the body, they turn right. over really rapidly. Right. It's just yeah. the reproductive tissue that's important. And then the queen always has the top, you know, workers at their peak. They, they're going to live for a few months and they're not going to live for a year and get worn out and work half the day and call it a day and say, I'm tired and I'm, you know, that that's it for me. I'm going on vacation. Um, but that makes sense, actually. That's incredible. I'm blown away by that. Um, so then really they're the way they work together and everyone's doing their part and they know their place and they know their job and they know how to communicate. It's like that this well-oiled machine that just with with ants that have hundreds or thousands of ants or however many like can be in a colony everyone's doing their part and it just works because that's what they do, I guess. Cause you would think it could just be mass chaos in there. Right. Yeah. The, I mean, the, it is, it is amazing to think that you have such a large decentralized society, right. That functions uh, as well as it does. And I think, you know, E.O. Wilson famously referred to like ants and bees and wasps as a factory inside of a fortress, right? They, they live in these underground tunnels or they create this, this nest well buffered against the environment, protects them against competitors or predators. And then within that uh, fortress, they have these workers that, again, are using division of labor so that there's a queen in charge of reproduction and the workers that are in charge of um, all the other tasks in the colony. And even among those workers, they're subdividing those tasks to increase efficiency, to make sure everything gets done. Um, and there's no real central control. I think there was this thought, you know, maybe 50 or 100 years ago that the queen was somehow communicating the needs of the colony and was in control of the colony. And now we appreciate that's just not the case. Yeah. You know, the queen has chemicals that she produces and that when workers, uh, you know, touch and respond to those chemicals, yet there are other cues that workers are getting from other workers and from the environment. Uh, for example, if a storm comes and wipes out a bunch of foragers, and now your colony is without foragers, um, they realize that you're not encountering many foragers. And so a bunch of, of workers that might currently be nurses will change their behavior and, and start foraging to meet the needs of their colony. Wow, and again, wow. they're doing it just following these simple decision rules, creating this unbelievably efficient, uh, well, I shouldn't say unbelievably efficient. There's a lot of redundancy. <laughs> Often right. there could be a thousand workers who are doing nothing and you're like, why are you even there? You know, right. um, but again, it works really well. But for tiny little brains there, that's actually pretty, pretty incredible. I mean, that, that I, really is that they, they I agree. I, I think it's unbelievably amazing. And there's a lot we can learn from that by understanding those decision rules that these ants are using and creating these really complex uh, patterns. Uh, I think, uh, for example, in computer science, 
um, and programming, uh, people really seek to like, well, maybe we can learn what those decision rules are and then apply them to programs to make programs more efficient. Yeah, wow. Um, so you were talking about what I would say with the dino ant. Um, I yeah. We had talked about that before, but I was telling the girls earlier that when I was um, hiking through Iguazu Falls with my husband at one point, and I come across this, this group of, we were all tourists, and there's a group of like 15, 20 people in a circle. And they were, and when we kind of worked our way into the top, the front of the circle, they were all looking at this ant, which I, on my life, it was two inches long. I mean, I think you said an inch or an inch and a half, but I'm going to say it was two inches long because that's what my brain was like. This is the largest. I'm like, we thought it was fake. It was just so enormous. And um, no wonder they can live a long time. He was like, hey, what's up? You know, and we're like, on your way, sir, because he was <laughs> moving and people were like, don't want to get in his way. He was just so epically huge. Like, uh, I think they can get to two inches. They are incredibly large. And I should say it would be on your way, ma'am, right? Because all ant yeah, workers are females. That's right. Yeah. On your way, ma'am. Yes, right. Because you said that most ants are females, correct? That's right. Males are really ephemeral. They're, with very few exceptions, um, males and social insects, the ants, uh, and it's, it specifically are, they're kind of, they're born, they mate, they die. They don't really do much else. Uh, they're kind of specialized for one purpose, maybe live a few weeks at most. So I have a question about that because I, again, just from the bees where the queen goes out and mates in ants, do these male ants live in the colony or does she go elsewhere? That, that also depends on the species. So many ants have nuptial flights, just like bees. Okay. Um, that, uh, Pogonomermix harvester ant that creates those giant underground nests that Walter Chinkle casts, for example, mm. are somewhat famous for having these mating flights where you'll see hundreds or maybe thousands of queens and males flying around. And like bees, queens will mate with multiple males and yeah. get a huge amount of sperm that they store for, you know, 20 years as they um, uh, uh, grow their colony. Um, other ants will mate within the nest, even with their own sisters uh, in a form of inbreeding. Again, you see this in many of these uh, introduced ants or, or, or kind of trampy pest ants. And then other ants have other um, specialized forms of, of mating that might not be either extreme, like not within the nest, not you know flying around in, in these big right. nuptial flights. But um, females, for example, in some species of ant release pheromones to call males. Oh, yeah, um, okay. like do and then the males will fly to the female and mate with them. Okay, interesting. That's so fascinating. Do you think that just is evolutionary? Evolutionarily, it just makes them more hardy as a species to have all these different ways of doing it. I'm curious that. Yeah, I think yeah, different species have evolved different mating strategies. I think in part because of whatever the selective pressures of their environment are. Yeah. Um, you know, if you are you know putting out a huge number of reproductive seasonally like right after a rain to overwhelm the predators in the environment and just to make sure a few queens survive. Right. That might push for these giant mating flights. In contrast, if you're not producing very many um, queens, you know, they might sneak out of the nest, call a male mate and sneak right back in the nest. Yeah. And that's a much more kind of protected way of doing it. Right. That makes sense. Oh, wow. That's incredible. So just switching gears a bit, I wanted to ask you about the impact that, and again, this is general because there's 15 to 20,000 different species, but just about the different impact ant colonies make on the health of our environments. You know, what are their critical contributions 
to not only the landscape, but other coexisting species? Because I think it's a really important question, you know, thinking of like from the entom entomological perspective, like what are our our worlds would look like you know just you know we, we had talked to uh dr may berenbaum and she just said you don't want to know how gross our world would be without insects and i'm ants are part of that sure yeah i mean i'm sure may mentioned things like the pollination services and how little food we would have without pollination services yes uh, ants are also incredibly important they're diverse they're incredibly common someone recently estimated something like 40 trillion ants on earth and because they're often scavengers, right, they are picking up things from the environment, um, dead insects that would be piling up, um, other detritus, uh, and, and and things that would really get in the way. Uh, there's a, a colleague of mine, Clint Pennick, who worked in New York, just looking at what the ants in the city streets were picking up, and they are garbage collectors, right? It's incredible just how much food and, uh, and waste that gets thrown out in the streets are being picked up by ants and then brought underground. And so not only are they cleaning up the surface by bringing these resources underground, right? They're actually really promoting nutrient turnover. They're digging yeah. soil up from underground and they're putting that on the surface, turning over the soil. They're bringing nutrients down into the ground where it could be used uh, by other organisms and plants. Their colony tunnels and chambers um, help aerate the soil. They help uh, water penetration into the soil. And so they're incredibly dynamic in terms of the the benefits that they provide, uh, for example, the soil that we then benefit from due to better agricultural practices. But on the surface, when they're eating other insects, those insects are often pests in our gardens and our agricultural areas. So having ants present can actually benefit the yields of, our, of agriculture. I mean, not all ants, some ants are pests, right? And, and become problematic, particularly things like fire ants that might have a sting that you know people are concerned about with livestock and stuff. But most ants aren't. I mean, most ants right. are incredibly beneficial. Right. And without their services, we would, like May Berenbaum had said, we would have a very different world, a much less pleasant world. Right. Yeah. And I just think it's really important because I think ants are one of those insects that are around all the time you see them all the time and you you know it's one of the first little insects i think children notice you know they're crawling around on the ground and they see little and i just think they are they're such the workers of our landscape and i think we often just trot all over them and fine you know you can't like miss every ant when you're walking through your garden that's fine it's just i think they are very um we we need to hail their the work they do more than and i just think it's important yeah, I agree completely. And I think we have to, you know, a lot of our agricultural practices, for example, you know, we just think about pesticide use but in urban areas as well. Like we just think of insects as the enemy. We don't want them in our houses. And I appreciate that. Yeah. I don't want roaches in my house, for example. I think roaches are really gross. Um, <laughs> I'm much more tolerant of, you know, but, you know, if there was an ant colony just sweeping across my kitchen, I wouldn't want that either. And I think there are things that we can do to, you know, as best as possible to discourage them from coming in our, in our houses or right. think about a more environmentally friendly ways to deal with them rather than, you know, broadcasting pesticides around the perimeter of your house or in agricultural areas where you might have non-target effects, which can be really bad um, as they affect other insects, which could be beneficial. You know, we might be able to manage the landscape in such a way that is um, kind of reducing our interaction with the insects we don't want to interact with but without wiping them out and right. you probably heard from may we we are worried right now that we're experiencing an insect apocalypse for lack of a better word as a result of like pesticide use and land use changes and um 
you know, who knows what else, right? We we have um, uh, evidence that there have been declines in large groups of, of insects. Um, you know, people have argued that, you know, you drive down the road at night and your windshield is clear. And that wasn't the case in the 80s when it would be right. you know, splattered with insects all the time. Wow, that's so yeah. true. Yeah. And I grew up uh, in the suburbs of Chicago and there were night there were street lights in front of my house that were just covered with moths and June bugs and other things. And bats would be swooping down and we just watched the bats eat the moss from these street lights. And the last time I went home to visit my parents, the same street light, you know, now a good 40 plus years later. And um, you know, I didn't see any insects, maybe one or two, but it wasn't yeah. this, what I remembered, right? A very yeah. vivid memory of what it was yeah. like when I was. Well, there's this cartoon that I've seen where the top, the top bar is a man driving with all these insects. Then there's a man driving with no insects. And then there's the car in the windshield. There's no man <laughs> because <laughs> You yeah, know. if they all disappear, so do we. Yeah, right. Right. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a, um, we live in a very interconnected web of species, you know, and we um you're losing a few here and there is not going to influence us too much, right? Um, losing too many undoubtedly will, or losing some key uh, species that are you know kind of hubs in our our, our matrix of, of the way life is interconnected. That's what we're most worried about. Yeah. Well, and that sort of leads me to my next question of like. I was sort of saying why this question, this conversation is important to, to us, but you know, why do you think this is, this is an important conversation and how does it, like, how does this better connect us to, to the natural world? Like in context to like what new perspectives and awarenesses can we gain from this conversation? I mean, that's, that is our, that's our question really. Yeah. I think uh, people have, I don't want to speak too generally, right? Because everyone is very different. My worry is that um, kids are growing up now with less of a connection to the natural world, uh, in part because it's not in their backyards anymore. And, you know, I grew up and I would walk down the street and there was a creek and there was a prairie. And if I go back to those same spots today, uh, again, what was the far west suburbs of Chicago is now the near suburbs of Chicago. Now, there are no prairies. It's a highway. And, and all the natural areas are either agricultural or urban development. And so the experiences I had finding snakes under boards and frogs at the pond and ants under rocks, uh, you know, that even at a very young age started me on this path to, to connect with nature, love the environment, you know, want to study ecology and, and how we are connected with the environment. I'm worried that um, kids these days aren't having those same experiences and they're less likely to feel that connection. And if you don't have that connection from an early age, you might become numb to it. So now when you see an insect, even a butterfly, it's repulsive uh, because you never really saw it in its environment. You only saw it in the context of something you didn't want in your house, right? Right. And that's my fear is that through time, people are becoming... Um, just less excited about the natural world. They're, they're seeing less awe and beauty in it because they're not having those experiences at young ages that really instilled that awe and beauty. You know, that trip to a national park you might take um, at, at a young age. And if people are doing that less, that's that's gonna really impact the way they view the environment and, and our role as stewards of the environment. Because, you know, once it's gone, it's gone. And more and more of it is, is disappearing. And I think we have to be uh, much more attuned to what we can do now uh, to preserve things uh, for fear of, of of extinction, right? Losing something forever. Yep. 
Well, that is so beautifully said, actually. And um, it's, it's, it's so true. I mean, none of us could say that better. So um, thank you for, for just offering your perspective on that. Cause I think that's um, it, it's so true. And I think it's something we, we all need to hear again and again. Um, so is there a way to support you or where can we follow you or gain access to your research? Like where can we, uh, where, where can we find you? Sure. So I have a, a very outdated website that I keep reminding myself I have to update. Where, <laughs> um, I, you know, historically anyway, would keep track of what the lab was up to, um, things that we're publishing, what my students are doing, where, where they end up. Um, in general, you know, there are all sorts of ways that, you know, you can um, be supportive. I would say, first of all, is get outside, view the natural world. You know, there are even great resources, uh, apps that you can download to help you identify things and and you know, I, I uh, even though I study ants, I, I used to be an avid bird watcher. I always found that very relaxing just to go outside and see what birds are around. Yep. But my my biggest advice would be is, you know, when you can, right, go out to a natural area and, and hike out and look around. The bigger picture, of course, is that individual, the change in individual behavior, as good as it is and as important it is, it won't be as important as policy, right, level changes. Um, to help us think of alternatives to pesticides that have long-lasting effects, or to think about ways that we can um, better preserve the environment nationally, you know. So in that sense, I think something that everyone can do that's very helpful is vote, vote with, you know, with your ideals and, and conscious, right. and um, get involved in policy. Uh, I think there are a lot of ways we can do that, uh, either by writing people or running for local office or whatever you can do. Right. And I think all that's going to ultimately, that's the only way we'll make real change. And, and, and those of, those of you that have little, little babies and little kids take them outside and show them the ants and talk to them about what they are and what they do at, at a young age and that they're not gross and that they're keeping our world clean and, all of those things. Cause what you said earlier about that, there's there's not as much to look at is just so true. Um, so Andy, thank you for a conversation I have wanted to have for a very long time about ants. Um, super interesting. And um, just thank you so much for sharing your your extensive knowledge and and your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, it was really my pleasure. Thank you so much, uh, Kate and Jennifer, for having me. Yeah, that was, was really so great. Much fun. It was really fun. I, I love it. And enjoy yeah. enjoy your day tomorrow <laughs> that you're having already. Right? That's right. I'm in the future. <laughs> if you need it, to know anything you're in about the future. <laughs> you, you are the future. Ants are the future. So thank you for that. <laughs> Thanks so much. Hello, and welcome back to The Takeaway. Um, thanks again to Andy for a lively and interesting and incredible conversation. And who knew there were 40 year old ants? Okay. So, and, and who knew there were like thousands of species? I mean, a different, different 15, species. I one estimated 15 to 20,000 different species. Yeah, I, I, I don't even understand that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I, that's gotta be unique. <laughs> it's like, unique. just so weird. Yeah. Great. So maybe we should uh, give a couple, throw a couple props and shouts out to the ants in the world. Um, but what did you, what did, what did you have? What was your main takeaway? So my main, uh, my main takeaway, listening back to the um, 
interview was basically, I just thought it was so interesting that um, hearing him talk about ants and all the things that they do and all the ways that they um, support life on our planet. Um, I, I, I was, I was mostly struck by the same thing that I'm often struck by, but really it, it took it, it sort of crystallized in um, the, that idea of uh, the less we understand about things in our world, like especially tiny little things like ants, the more we can otherize and that we just don't really understand that they're not at all separate from us. Like everything he said, like it, it, it sort of crystallized um, on a micro level, what's happening on a macro level, I guess I would say. And just this, this, all the jobs they have between the pollination and the, the cleanup and the, just the, the new adding nutrients to the soil, all these yeah. things. It was just like, Oh my gosh, when we don't understand, we are afraid, you know, like yeah. when people, you know, yeah. Mm -hmm. It just makes you scared. Like he said, if a bug gets in the house, people are afraid because it's so foreign. And he and and him talking about again these same themes about we just need to we just need to familiarize ourselves with nature more. We need to be spending time in nature yeah. more in order to um, like. I was also struck by like you saying that you know you'd seen the ants bump into each other like you've actually observed them enough to see that and wondering what's happening and now we know what's happening yeah right and just again he's he, his um depth and wealth of knowledge uh and just sharing that with us is such a gift because it really does make me I want to take a little kid outside and, you know, start looking under logs and check out the ants and what they're doing and what they're right. carrying. And, yes. you know, it just, yep. I, well, anyway. And, and, you know, we were talking earlier about how, I think what you're talking about too is just normalizing nature, but in, it's in specific context. And this was like one of my big takeaways was in specific context to children, because he was saying that yeah. like children aren't out turning over rocks, turning over logs. They're not yeah. finding lizards, snakes, like, Right. bugs insects they're not right. looking at the street lights lights anymore and seeing tons of insects surrounding them like mm -hmm. so like to your point so then ch children are not growing up as a normal part of their day-to-day -day kind of life and then so when they're they're adults and living in their house and you said like a bug gets in they're like oh my gosh there's a bug in here and it's gross now because they have mm -hmm. no connection right and it right. doesn't it's not normal to have to see these you know, to, to, to sort of, Oh, we're, we're used to this and we're interconnected. Right. Um, right. And, and, and that's right. And because it's, it's, it's feels foreign and scary. Like most people, they see a bug and they try to kill it immediately. Right. That's their first instinct is I have to kill this threat, yes. you know? That's right. That's exactly right. And, you know, I think the other thing I will say too, cause that really was my biggest takeaway is just, can we in general, once a day, once a week, once a month, take take our children out and do some of this sort of, you know, sitting on the side. You just have to sit yeah. on the sidewalk and you see ants yeah. milling around. And right. you, you don't need to go out into like the forest. You can be right. right in your own space, in your little back garden or your whatever. Um, right. The other thing I was thinking was, you kind of sparked this in my brain, was how much, how are we like them? How can we relate yeah. to them, right? And right. how... 
how important they are to the, the, the bigger collective, which made me think about when he was talking about, and I've heard this, how, you know, there are lots of like people in IT and all kinds of different, you know, government like areas that people are, are studying ants and how much we can learn from them. Right. And yeah. Just right. Like, like you were saying in the interview, how much room for error there could be in a, in a ant, uh, in an ant colony colony yes yeah. um and that that's exactly what he was saying that they're studying like how are these things these predictors making yeah. things just work smoothly when you sometimes have hundreds of thousands of these little yeah. creatures all cohabitating yeah and yeah it's crazy i mean there is so i will say what's up there's just so much to learn from oh, them so on so many levels. Learn. Yeah. And like literally researchers are like learning so much. I just literally heard this thing on NPR the other day about how, don't ask me how, they're now quote unquote training ants to to um, smell, I'll say in, in, in quotes, uh, cancer. So it's sort of like just mm. the amount of um, that we can learn and how much because what 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 we know about them can translate actually to our lives and i think that's right. yeah. such an important that's our biggest takeaway really and just yeah. like can we again like normalize nature and yeah. um but again thank you so much to andy for joining us that was great um yeah it was such a delight to talk to him i really really i loved i loved hearing everything he had to say it was so great and he's just a very obviously kind and lovely human so another yeah, absolutely, one absolutely absolutely so yeah so thank you to him and just one other thing i want to let people know too is we don't really talk about um where you can follow us but you can follow us on instagram and on facebook but pri prime primarily i would say on instagram at the uh the kindred pod um we've got a really a lot of good like content we put up there and stories and on posts and um it's just a fun way to see what we're up to. And uh, again, thanks so much for joining us and we will see you next time. Lots of love. Bye. Kindred is hosted by me and my sister, Jen. Produced by Kat Gaddy and myself. Sound production and editing by Dan Cooper. Original music by Ellie Grace. And our Kindred artwork was created by Lindsay Coffin. Please follow, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And feel free to contact us through our website at kindredpodcast.co, where you can also find links to our socials, Patreon page, and show notes.